0: What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Greetings and salutations for another episode for the Archives of the Conspiracy Farm. Jeffrey Wilson, rolling shotgun, as always, with UFC Hall of Famer, Eater of Worlds, Master of the Tango, Lover of Ice Cream, Pat Militich. What's up, champ?
1: I can only do left-handed cartwheels, though.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Can't go to the right. I can only go
0: to the left. I don't well, know why that is. Well, you can't be a, the master of everything, brother. But uh, <laughs> today, man, I'm really stoked because this guy's literally been our most viewed episode. Um, He's just, uh, I I could listen to him for hours. Everybody's probably heard him and Graham Hancock for hours on the Joe Rogan experience. He's an architect, geological theorist, anthropological theorist, master builder, architectural designer, teacher, geometrician, geomythologist, geological explorer, and renegade scholar. I love that. Mr. Randall Carlson joining us once again. What's up, Randall?
1: Randall, Jeff's talking to you. Can you hear him?
0: Hey, I, now
2: you're, uh, yeah, you disappeared for a moment there. Oh, well, how are we doing, buddy? I'm doing great. But you, <clears throat> you sound Fantastic. like you're I in I the bottom a of a well. I want to the
0: boys over at the Grimerica very podcast, well, um, Graham and Darren, for help facilitate getting you back on. Check those guys out at Grimerica.ca if you want to check out their volumes and volumes of very, very interesting and thought-provoking podcast. And you guys have an event coming up, don't you guys, that you want to shout-out there, Randall?
2: Yeah, I do. Um, Yeah, it's in May. Uh, May 17th, there's going to be sort of gathering. The the Grimerica boys have rented a lodge there in southern Colorado, just north of Pagosa Springs. And we're going to get together and do some good eating and some exploring. And we'll have some lectures and multimedia shows and who knows what. Um, So it's going to be from the 17th, there's going to be I think the way they've set it up is there's going to be uh, three, I guess they're calling them trimesters, where you come in uh, for three days, and, and we're going to do three of them back-to-back. So the best bet would be to go to the Grimerica website where they've got the details.
0: Okay. That sounds like a great time, man. I'd love to, love to check that out.
2: Yeah, have you ever spent any time in southern Colorado, in the Durango area, or northern New Mexico, around Taos?
1: I've never never been there. I've been all over the country, but I've never been there.
2: That's a wonderful place. It is. So we're going to be exploring, uh, it's going to be kind of a combination of archaeology and geology in our field trips. We're going to be learning about the Chacoan culture that occupied the San Juan Basin of New Mexico, and then... Uh, extended up into southern Colorado and into Utah, and it's one of those mysterious lost cultures that did uh, a lot of, built a lot of really cool infrastructure that's still out there in the deserts. Uh, You know, it's archaeoastronomy is the term, because this is the science that looks at how these ancient peoples were building their uh, sacred centers, their urban centers, their temples, and their complexes, according to the astronomical patterns in the sky, <clears throat> so that's a big part of what we'll be doing is learning about that and then exploring some of that and then we'll be looking at some of the regional geology that has evidence for some major transitional events in Earth history, some of them quite recent as a matter of fact. So there'll be kind of a it'll be in a kind of an eclectic mix but mostly focused on the archaeology and the geology of, of the area
1: and, and as, f- as plenty far, of that as far as those structures go go Randall I was wondering have mathematicians been put onto these locations to to measure them and, and figure out exactly you know how 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 precisely they built these buildings to match the astronomical uh, the heavens above
2: yes yes uh, you know, mostly it's been astronomers. You know, this archaeoastronomy has been kind of a subset of the whole, it's an interdisciplinary approach where you, you're looking at the archaeology, you're looking at the, the infrastructure in the buildings, uh, the roadways, the the causeways, the plazas, and all of this. And what it requires is kind of an overlap between understanding geometry, architecture, and astronomy. So, it's, you know, it's a field that didn't exist, you know, in the 50s and 60s, uh, other than totally out on the fringes. But it, in the last two or three decades, it's kind of come in to its own. So once it became, you know, that it, it became uh, accepted that, yeah, these people were doing that. These people were obsessively interested in the sky, and for whatever motive, whatever was motivating them, they attempted to duplicate the patterns of the sky down here below mm-hmm. it's kind of the alchemical dictum as above so below it in the literal right. most literal sense
1: and what time period was were these structures built or this society um built do they do they have they figured that yeah,
2: out? yeah it's i'm guessing well it's probably more than a guess but based upon the evidence i've seen it probably began about a thousand bc and came in several waves and the final wave was perhaps eight hundred years ago. Um,
1: well, that recent, so, up to that recent, okay.
2: Up, up to that recent, assuming that the dating is is correct, and and at this point, I don't have any reason to to doubt the dating. Um, it appears like some of the sites were occupied, then abandoned, then occupied again, and somewhere around seven eight hundred years ago, apparently there was a very severe drought in the uh, southwestern u.s area okay and this might have been the death knell for the chacoan culture
1: so they just simply simply moved out of the area or did they die off or
2: oh that's part of the mystery i'm i'm going to lean towards they moved out of the area but there was probably starvation as well because when the rains disappeared the crops failed and you know when the crops failed, you don't eat right and then the next thing that happens is famine so, yeah and then once people get weak from not having eaten, their immune systems get compromised and then that's when pestilence and disease comes in. You can see that quite frequently throughout history where there have been periods of famine um, and that's been followed by you know the bubonic plague, the black pa- plague, the Justinian plague. all of those came in the wake of periods where people didn't have food. And mostly that was brought about by uh, cold. Uh, You know, the Little Ice Age uh, caused, when that came on in the early 1300s, it caused crop failures all over Europe uh, in the 1340s. And then, uh, as a result of that, um, you know, the great—because Europe had been quite prosperous for three or four centuries during the medieval Warm period, and it was during this time when they had an abundance of food, and they could organize these armies of craftsmen to build these magnificent cathedrals that they built all over Europe. But when the climate shifted in the early 1300s, there was a whole series of crop failures that led to famine. And then you had the bubonic plague that wiped out, in in some places, as much as half the population. Uh, In some places, almost the entire population. And so suddenly there was no workforce, um, you know, and people were thrown back, you know, into the survival mode. So that was the end of, you know, the Gothic building uh enterprise that had gone on for almost 200 years
1: amazing to destroy society that way and you know how quickly did the ice age come on at that time in the early 1300s
2: oh pretty quick within about a decade or two at the at the most um i think there was a there was a cold spell i think it was in the year 1314 and then you know it didn't come on all at once what happened was you sort of saw this progressive deterioration of the climate over a period of several decades. Because um, there was would have been some, some extremely cold winters, then some chilly, wet, damp summers, then some warmth came back again, and then it, it succumbed to the cold. So then you had about a century of the, what I call the first wave of the Little Ice Age, and this is when glaciers began to grow again. And by the 1600s and 1700s, the glaciers had grown like through most of the world to a larger extent than they had been in over 10,000 years since the end of the Great Ice Age. And so a lot of, uh, in Europe particularly, a lot of farms were destroyed as the glaciers increased in size the, and they came down out of the mountain valleys into the, into the what they call the intermontane or intermountain valleys where the farms were and wiped out the farms.
1: That's incredible. Now... We hear a scientist talking about a current ice age that's potentially coming now. What? What? How much truth is behind that? What's going on with the climate change and all the other talk that we've we've heard about for decades? Not. We don't want to be controversial necessarily about this, but what you know, you're running in circles of people who are very intelligent who are very educated about this stuff. What's What's actually going on? Do you Do you believe?
2: Well, you know, for about three years now, we have been in a what's called a solar minimum. And the solar minimum is definitely correlated with climate change. Right. And without, you know, getting into the controversial stuff, I guess, um, you know, there's a there's a great deal of evidence out there correlating uh, climate change with uh, solar change, solar variability. And it's regrettable that that tends to be downplayed or ignored in most of the, you know, scenarios that uh, are coming out of the IPCC, which basically was an organization that was founded to make the case that humans are the dominant cause of climate change. So given that, and I mean, anybody who doubts that can actually read that in the, in the charter of the organization. It's stated right there. So reading that, you realize, okay, they're not going to be looking at the sun. They're not going to be looking at changes in the geomagnetic field. They're not going to be looking at it changes in the amount of cosmic dust accreted to the Earth. They're not going to be looking at volcanism. They're not going to really be looking at changes in atmospheric and oceanic circulation as much as they're going to be looking at carbon dioxide because of the fact that carbon dioxide is directly a function of you know modern civilization. Right.
1: Well, that's well. You can't you can't tax the sun. You can't charge it. Uh, extra extra money for a gallon of gasoline either. Yeah,
2: you know, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. And you know, I don't know if you remember this, but you know in the 70s the concern was about an ice age, not global warming. The concern was about global cooling. And and the reason for that is because you see there were old models um of uh like climate change particularly with reference to the glacial and interglacial ages that were you know had been well established by the by the late 1800s but the time frames were always considered to be extremely long you know in other words <clears throat> we might have 100 or 150,000 years to get into an ice age and just as long to get out of an ice age right right <clears throat> well so what changed that was in the 1950s was the development of radiocarbon dating as a method of dating organic material uh, that's less than say 40 or 50,000 years old. And what had happened was the, 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 the method of radiocarbon dating was developed in the early 50s, but it took a decade or two to, to build up a database of dates where one could look and go, okay, so we were assuming that the great ice sheets over North America were pretty much um, intact uh, consistently for maybe 100,000 years or longer. Problem was is that they began to do radiocarbon dating and discovered that well, right in the middle of where the big ice sheet was, where it might have been a mile and a half thick, there were forests growing, and those forests were growing there thirty five, forty thousand years ago. So clearly, if there were forests growing there, there couldn't have been a mile thick ice sheet. Right. So the question then becomes: Is well, what was the extent of the ice sheet during this this period? And and it must have shrunk considerably from. Its, it's most massive extent. So what, and then the other thing was, is that realizing that most of the ice was still there at 14 or 15,000 years ago. Um, and the assumption was up to this time is that the ice disappeared because there were changes in Earth's orbital geometry and the connection with the sun, right? So Earth, you know, sometimes is a little farther away from the sun, sometimes it's a little closer. Yeah. Uh, you know, the earth is tilted. Sometimes the northern hemisphere is tilted more towards the uh, sun. Sometimes the southern hemisphere is. Right. And of course, the northern hemisphere is mostly land and the southern hemisphere is mostly ocean. So you have the potential of, of, of this great ice accumulation in the northern hemisphere more so than the southern hemisphere. But in any case, these, these forces of, of geometric change between the Earth and the Sun are called Milankovitch forces or Milankovitch cycles after um, Malutin Milankovitch, who was a a mathematician, I think he was Serbian, um, that that did the calculations. But within that model, it's a long gradual process to get out of an ice age. Problem is now, as we know, that it was not even remotely close to a long gradual process. It was a a, um, episodic process. There was...
1: Are you talking a strike? A strike from a um, uh, something that came out of the heavens, so to speak?
2: Well, you know what? I would consider that to be one of the prime contenders for explaining the um, what we now know is that you see when we, for example, when the ice melts, obviously that ice is melting and it's going back into the oceans. As as it goes into the oceans, the oceans' level rise. So it's the opposite process. When the ice is growing, ocean levels are shrinking so at the at the late glacial maximum as it's called which was 16 to 20,000 years ago sea levels were as much as 400 feet lower than they are now wow so but so the assumption the earlier assumption was is that there was a relatively smooth process the ice melted away and sea levels came up in a very gradual very uniform manner but that's not how it happened the sea levels came up in pulses, of uh, huge pulses of meltwater introduced suddenly into the ocean. Um, for example, meltwater pulse 1A, as it's called, is now dated around 14,600 years ago. There was another great pulse of meltwater uh, dated to 11,600 years ago, and there's evidence that there may have been a third pulse around 12,800 years ago, which corresponds to the onset of the Younger Dryas. So what it appears is that there had to have been sudden energy inputs into the system because it takes energy to melt ice, right? So we're talking about an ice mass over North America that was bigger than the one that's now over the South Pole, Antarctica. Wow. Now, if you, if you were going to try to come up with a scenario, hey, let's, let's melt all the ice in Antarctica in a few thousand years, how would you do it? Well, the problem with that is, is that there's not enough energy available to accomplish that. In, in a few thousand years um, because it requires um, a significant input of, of heat to, to accomplish that melting. So what was the source of that heat? That's the mystery. Now, Robert Schock believes it was the sun, and I and I tend to agree with him, but I also believe that we were dealing with some, what, the, what you just brought up was some uh, impacts of objects from space, which certainly could introduce an enormous amount of energy into the system and yeah. crater, extreme melting.
1: And the argument about, you know, they they still are searching for major craters. I mean, they found some, obviously, but um, the, the fact that there was a couple miles of ice over the top of everything and a crater being formed wouldn't necessarily happen as easily, I guess, if that were the case, right?
2: That's exactly right, because the crater, <laughs> I mean, the ice is going to absorb a lot of the energy of the impact. Now, of course, there's so many variables there that it's a complex thing to think about. But, you know, you're talking about, obviously, first and foremost would be the size of the impactor. The second thing would be the velocity of the impactor. The third thing would be the density of the impactor and its composition. The fourth thing would be the angle of approach. All of these things are going to uh, affect what happens in terms of the post immediate post-impact phenomena and the resultant cratering effects. So if you had a mile, a mile and a half or more of ice, and the object was, say, only a half a mile or less in diameter, you're probably not going to have a typical crater, bowl-like crater form under the ice. If it's a little bigger so that it can penetrate the ice, it most likely will blast a crater out. But the problem is, is now in the process of that impact, you generated enough heat to melt an enormous amount of ice.
1: So sediment and sediment, and everything else flows back in, probably?
2: Flows back in, that's exactly right. Okay. And, and in fact, to, to, there are very <laughs> few analogs for impacts into ice sheets. So the things I have looked at primarily to try to get an understanding would be an impact into the ocean, right? Which is right. very distinct from an impact into land. Now, an impact into ocean, if you aloft, huge amounts of water vapor into the atmosphere. And that water vapor, you know, water vapor is a greenhouse gas, so it's going to form a canopy that causes temporary short-lived runaway global warming until, until the water vapor uh, precipitates out. An the impact onto land is going to loft enormous amounts of dust into the atmosphere, and it's also going to trigger uh, lots of wildfires as a secondary effect, and those wildfires will put more soot and carbon into the atmosphere, that will increase the opacity of the atmosphere, reflecting a lot more sun back into space, and therefore cause global cooling. So there are those two different effects. Now, what happens, though, if you have a multiple impact event, and you have impacts into both ocean and land? Well, now you're going to get such a complex set of, of effects that it's going to be difficult to, to sort them out. But that, I think, is the challenge in front of us because the evidence is there that there was some kind of an impact from something from space. Right. I mean, the iridium is there, the platinum is there, the nanodiamonds, the the microspherals, the magnetic grains, all of these things taken together really point pretty much directly to an impact of some kind, right?
1: Now in Now, in Australia, there's... Correct me if I'm wrong, but is there a debris field of meteoric uh, of meteor material where there is not necessarily a crater?
2: Yes, Um, in fact, which would suggest hitting
1: a massive layer of ice, right?
2: Yeah. Now that's probably from um, low density objects entering the atmosphere and exploding in the atmosphere.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: See, um, which is which is essentially what happened in uh, 1908 with the Tunguska uh, cosmic event over Siberia, which you're probably familiar with, right? That, yes. The big the big explosion there that...
1: that leveled, leveled trees for hundreds of miles?
2: Yeah, yeah. Leveled trees over 800 and some square miles. Um, incinerated about 100 or 150 um, square miles right under the epicenter of the blast. that just turned it into nothing. Um,
1: How far above the Earth did it detonate?
2: About five miles, eight okay. kilometers roughly. Um, so yeah, and that was based on the size and the density of the object. It was probably, I think the prime candidate for its identity was a member of the Torrid Meteor Stream, which the Earth crosses twice each year, once right around Halloween, and once in, and again in late June, early July. Um, you know, it's a stream of meteoritic debris that is circling, it, it, it is handed off between Jupiter and the Sun, so it's in a big elliptical orbit that takes it out to Jupiter and then back in where it goes around the sun so it earth crosses that stream as it's coming in towards the sun in late October early November okay it crosses the stream again when it's coming from around the sun uh in late June early July so now the uh from from the detailed um analysis of the eyewitness accounts the Astronomers and others who have been looking at this were able to determine the point in the sky from which the object actually emanated. and um, one of the things that was repeatedly said by people was things like well, it looked like it was shot out of the sun. it looked like it was born from the sun. Um, things like that, which you know puts it coming into the atmosphere from the direction of the Sun and it it was, Early in the morning, about maybe seven seven thirty on June thirtieth by the Gregorian calendar, that that thing came in, and um, exploded. But you know, it came in essentially without warning. They couldn't see it again because it was coming from the direction of the sun, which right. is exactly where uh, a torrid meteor would be coming from.
1: So this is time. amazing, though. That so, if it was if it was born of the sun, it would be. Uh, a solar flare of epic proportions. Then,
2: if it was born, but see, what what I think that was the illusion that because it came from, it came directly from the, that direction. Okay, what okay. I'm saying. Yeah. So if if you were looking in the sky where the thing was coming from, it was coming from the direction of the sun. All right. All right. And this is why we don't see torrid meteors really. We don't see the summertime torrids because of that fact that. In order to see them, you have to look directly towards the sun, essentially. Whereas the fall-time taurids, you're looking out towards the constellation of Taurus, the bull. That's why they're called the taurids. Right. And so if, to see the taurids, you know, go out in late October, early November. And, and, and actually the radiant point, which is the point at which a meteor stream appears to emanate from space, which is an illusion because it's not really... Coming from Taurus, right? It's just that we look in the direction of Taurus to see those meteors coming back in from from out in the uh, Jupiter's orbit, right? Okay. But the the radiant point, which is like the bullseye, imagine this: that you're that you're walk you walk down railroad tracks as a kid, right? And you remember how the, the the parallel tracks converge to a point in the distance. Yes, sir. Now picture instead of two-dimensional railroad tracks you've got like a tunnel and that's the best way to visualize a meteor stream is that you've got this stream of debris it's coming in a tunnel and so if you're looking up the tunnel it's it's going to give the the illusion of perspective it's going to it's going to look like everything is converging on a point it's not really because these these objects are all flying in parallel paths
1: and they're all they are, they're all orbiting also correct or are they not yes
2: they're orbiting yes and, and and the thing is though the orbit is is big enough that by the time it intersects the Earth's orbit, for all practical purposes, those pieces are flying in parallel lines. Okay. See. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever had a calculus course um, at any time in your life, but yes. the idea of, of I got
1: hit a lot since then though. I've been hit a lot. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's true. I guess so. So all that calculus stuff kind of got left there in the ring. That's it?
1: two plus two now, buddy.
2: Okay. Well, <laughs> Hey, that's better than some people.
1: Right, right. So th- let let me ask you. I mean, if we were to have one of these events now, with seven eight billion people on this planet, um, one that you know caused massive flooding. I mean, what are we looking at as as far as cost to human lives or just human existence?
2: Depends on the magnitude of the event. Now, a sure, but one that
1: say one that's happened before. Say, for instance,
2: Let, let's start with the Tunguska event. The Tunguska event, the energy released was about equivalent to a fifteen megaton hydrogen bomb. Now, a fifteen megaton hydrogen bomb is generally considered to be a, a city buster. It it could one hydrogen bomb of fifteen megatons could wipe out any urban area on Earth. L.A. is gone. L.A. is gone. Yes, L.A. is gone. So 15 megatons is 15 million tons of TNT equivalent, right? Yeah. So um, the Hiroshima object was 10,000 tons. So a 1,500 megaton bomb, hydrogen bomb, would be the equivalent of 1,500 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs. So that's pretty damn devastating. That's terrifying. Now— when we're talking about a Tunguska object, we're looking at an object that's estimated to be somewhere between 100 and 200 feet in diameter.
1: Tiny, tiny in the, in the really, in the spectrum of things.
2: Yes, in the cosmic spectrum, it's, it's a piece of cosmic dust, right. basically. Now, if you get up to something much, much bigger than that, say six miles in diameter, which is the estimated diameter of the dinosaur-killing asteroid... We would be lucky to survive as a species, right? Right. We probably could if we had enough lead time, um, especially if we had, like, a lunar base that we could relocate <laughs> to for a few years.
1: A lunar um, base. Wow. Yeah. That's mind-blowing. Um,
2: mind yeah. But that's not likely. What's more likely is something along the, the scale of a Tunguska object. But that in itself would be pretty dramatic event because we're talking about imagine oh i mean like hurricane katrina hitting new orleans that was that was a big deal right Correct. but now take that multiply that times 10 say raised by an order of magnitude that's kind of where the scale we'd be looking at with a Tunguska scale event if if it happened over a, a fairly uh, densely populated part of the Earth, like the Eastern Seaboard or Europe or any place like that, or yeah. um, So, are you still there?
1: Oh yeah, I'm here. I'm okay, just okay. I'm just soaking it all in.
2: Weird noises came across just then. Anyways, um, so you would have, uh, but see here, here's the here's where it gets interesting and kind of scary. There's a number of astronomers and astrophysicists and stuff who are studying the various um kinds of impacts and encounters that the earth can have um and one of the things that they um concluded was there may be episodes where there are multiple tunguska events and not just a single object coming in but perhaps dozens or maybe even hundreds
1: which is which is certainly believable considering all the debris out there and and, yes yes.
2: and and here and here's the thing um you have a few dozen of those that's going to be a major game changer you have a few hundred of them that you're talking about something that's going to be on the scale of an all out thermonuclear war in terms of its devastation
1: it's an extinction level event at that point
2: it's it, it's well it may not i, I wouldn't call it extinction from this <laughs> locally yes it would certainly cause extinction of species locally uh, it would Definitely cause the extinction of civilization, not necessarily the extinction of the human species, but essentially we would find ourselves living back a Stone Age existence, starting all over again.
1: No, no more iPads for Junior.
2: No, no more iPads for Junior.
1: No. Well, I'd like to shift gear with you a little bit because I mean I'd I'd love to stay on this path, but there's so much stuff that you know that I want to hit on. I want to talk a little bit about, and this is me trying to give you props. When you were on Rogan's show with, with uh, Graham Hancock and Michael Shermer, Graham Hancock, obviously, and you, you know, your beliefs coincide, your your research coincides for the most part, obviously. Uh, but Shermer's a mainstream guy that just, it seemed like um, he was very uncomfortable during that show. He was trying to stick up for, for mainstream, the old school, you know, what we learned in elementary, junior high and high school and, and college, the old, the old books, the old ways of, of thinking and, and a lot of old science and, and he and Graham Hancock had pretty, pretty heated. I don't think they liked each other a whole lot. Let's put it that way. And you seemed to be the one you didn't talk that much, but when you did, you said a lot and you brought it, you circled it all back in and made it understandable for the layman to, to really be able to decipher a lot of this. And Rogan was on your side quite a bit also.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, he was, he saw what was going on and, and, you know, Shermer, listen, Shermer, plays a role and and it's a valuable role there needs to be skeptics on all levels but basically michael Shermer, his job he's a gatekeeper so his job is to undermine anything that would question the prevailing paradigms you see um so so that's what he's doing um and you know i came away from it with the conviction that yeah he didn't know what he was talking about and um came he came unprepared um i i you know afterwards we hung out a bit you know and it was very congenial there was no you know graham and and uh and uh michael Shermer were got on famously for about an hour while we hung out and then we parted company and said hey we should do this again <laughs> but i don't think michael really wants to um and you know the thing was is i, I tell you Pat, i went there um prepared to <clears throat> unleash the big guns. And I never really did. I was sitting there with, you know, hundreds of slides, um, ready to jump in there and, you know.
1: Yeah. And I don't think you needed to, I think just, just the little bits that you needed to insert yourself in the conversation was more than enough, more than ample to really, uh, take his legs out from underneath him on, on a lot of the stuff that he was trying to say.
2: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, again, I, I listen, to me, it's like uh, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of a lot of things that I hear, and I think there is a lot of nonsense out there. And, you know, I I try to dot my I's and cross my T's and do my homework so that I'm not coming in and just coming with something half-baked, but it's something that I've actually thought about and done the research and done the background on it so I can actually speak knowledgeably, yeah. cite the resources, you know, know the references, know who's doing the work and, and what it is, and, know, and, and I try to look at both sides of it, too. You know, so, like, in terms of the Younger Dryas impact ideas, I've gone through not only the proponents, but the, the opponents of the idea, line by line, you know, to try to see what are the, the criticisms of this. And the, the critics of the theory do have some legitimate arguments, right? But when it comes down to it, um, they don't have an alternate explanation, They've got some legitimate criticisms that of the of the impact scenario at the end of the last ice age, but then they don't have an explanation for how you could uh, trigger such a, an extreme change in the global environment over such a short period of time.
1: Right. It's like it's like people that criticize certain politics and don't offer up a solution. It's the same mentality—just people complaining, basically. <laughs> and and so, you know, when we, I, I. This is something that's been really sticking with me a lot because of all the, I'm kind of changing gears a little bit, as far as ancient civilizations, a lot of the pyramids globally that have been found all over and are, are being discovered constantly in the jungles down in South America, and I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are on term, in terms of the burial grounds, the Indian mounds here in, say, the Midwest in the United States, just for instance, are those, are those pyramidic structures, are those... Are those structures that are similar to what you know have been found in the ancient Mayan civilizations, things like that? Yeah. They, or they, I mean, is, are they very similar? Are they the same thing?
2: They're very similar. Um, okay. A lot of the differences, you know, of course, has to do with what what's available to build with. In you know, in the Mississippi and Ohio valleys, you had earth and timber. In Central America, you had limestone primarily. Right. Um, so, <clears throat> but when you look at the the, the general form of the structures, very similar because you have truncated pyramids in both places, the difference being that, say, in uh, Mesoamerica, uh, the pyramids, the flat-top pyramids are built of stone, whereas in uh, North America, they're built of earth. But uh, in, in the North American pyramids, they all held uh, wooden timber framed structures on top of them that were undoubtedly temples um, that are, of course, because they were timber they're now gone um okay but in some of the some of them if you look carefully you can see that depressions in the ground that that were where the post hole where the holes were that held the post
1: interesting so who were the builders of these i mean we're i mean where how far back do these date the oldest ones and and who were the builders of them
2: well the oldest ones um and now graham is getting into this in his new book that's going to be coming out in april um the oldest ones are you know 5,000 years old there are there are uh, earth monumental earthwork structures in louisiana that are actually older than 5,000 years wow. um poverty point watson break are two of them. let's see w- poverty point i think has been dated at 4,700 years and watson break has been dated around maybe 5,500 years so and you know Basically, what you see is when you start looking at these structures, and whether it's South America, and in Graham's book, he gets into great detail about the earthwork architecture in the Amazonian Basin. And the interesting thing there is is that that stuff and the vast extent of this infrastructure has been hidden by the rainforests for centuries. Yeah. And with all the clear-cutting that's been going on, which, you know, is is not a good thing because, of course, it's releasing huge amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But um, what it's doing, though, is it's exposing the land below, and there's this gigantic, extensive infrastructure of monumental earthwork architecture. And it's, for all practical purposes, it's almost identical to what we find in the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys.
1: And what type of I mean what type of numbers are we talking in terms of population of these of these cities?
2: Oh, tens of thousands of people. So the the whole population had to have been at least several million.
1: That's incredible.
2: It is incredible. And 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 I would highly recommend, you know, when it comes out in April to to get Graham's book and read it because it's 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 going to be a paradigm changer. I'm I'm about 2 thirds of it right now. I'm doing a review for him. He sent me a pre-publication copy and I've been like I said, about two thirds of the way through it, and it's yeah, it's it's gonna it's gonna change the terms of the argument. and you know, he addresses a lot of the things people have brought up. You know, the the critics that don't like the idea that history may be a lot more complicated than the standard textbook versions.
1: Yeah. So, so. the information that we got, that we grew up reading, you know, all the history books and everything else. Was this by design, or was this just simply by accident? Of just people just didn't know; they didn't have the technology. We hadn't found the pyramids. All this, all this other stuff that's, you know, that I could theorize on. But what do you think really is is the cause of of the misinformation we were fed?
2: I, I would be inclined towards the, the second. I would be less inclined to think that it was a conspiracy in the old days. I just think it was part of the model. You know, sort of this Judeo Christian model of of earth change, um, and then how that got, how that transitioned into sort of the modern concepts of of global change and prehistory. You know, for one thing, there was an objection, you know, there was sort of a, what we say, type of a, a cultural chauvinism going on, not to give credit to various indigenous peoples around the planet that may have actually had a much more sophisticated understanding of, of astronomy and geometry and mathematics and engineering than they've been given credit for. But it certainly does seem now like there is sort of a conspiratorial element to it because um, what seems to be emerging out of the you know, the evidence of history and prehistory is that yeah, there have probably been multiple civilizations that have arisen and become lost the vagaries of time and have left almost no trace um you know because the human presence on earth keeps getting pushed further and further back i mean we're finding now evidence of modern humans going back to 150 to 200 thousand years
1: that's the and that's the thing that is blowing everybody's minds and a lot of the people that are protecting you know the the old textbook way of thinking are freaking out about that
2: well yeah and they don't uh yeah because it's going to require basically here's what we're looking at the the models of of historical change and geological change and so forth have have evolved over 100 to 150 years right most of the 20th century was the um the development of the uh, academic models of prehistory the yeah. ideas of long slow gradual change you have the uniformitarian concept in geology which is one grain of sand, one drop of water at a time. If you've got millions and millions of years, that's going to accomplish, you know, and be able to shape the world into what we see today, yeah. right? And alongside of that came Darwinian evolution, which is kind of the the biological counterpart to uniform geological uniformity, which says, you know, that species evolve one small incremental change at a time, and over long periods of time, these... Changes accumulate, and eventually one species becomes a new species. But, you know, we're still back to the problem that, you know, when we look at species, we're looking at the end members of a continuum. But where the hell is the continuum, you see? (laughs) Where is it? But, But then, and this is why... In the early 80s, there was such resistance to the idea that the dinosaurs were exterminated by an asteroid impact because suddenly you've got a mass extinction event. You've got a mass mortality event that wipes out a, 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 a majority of the species' existent at the time, right? Yeah. And then that's followed by a hiatus in the fossil record where there is a, a an extreme impoverishment of, of diversity in the species. And then suddenly all these new species appear you know they call it the 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 zoologists and the paleontologists and things looking at this will call it a rapid speciation event but what causes that no one really knows at this point but so now the models of of you know uh, evolutionary change are going to have to take account of these rapid extinctions and these rapid speciation events and figure out how, how do those go how do those get worked into the model I think part of it is this. I think part of it is that when you have a mass extinction event that's triggered by some type of a cosmic encounter, an asteroid or a comet delivers all kinds of very exotic materials into Earth's biosphere during an impact event. And a lot of the research that I'm really interested in right now has to do with how those materials – such as the platinum group metals, in particular, right. might act as catalysts to trigger rapid evolutionary change over a very short period of time. It's it's very possible, Pat, that the same event that wipes out a whole bunch of species on one end is then stimulating or catalyzing the emergence of a bunch of new species. In fact, since
1: a the cosmic the a cosmic war, Noah's Ark. Pardon me. A cosmic Noah's Ark.
2: A cosmic Noah's Ark. And, and, you know, as, as, you know, as cliche as it might sound, I don't rule out the possibility that people's back during the last mass extinction episode, which was the Younger Dryas extinction episode, may... Yeah, how many years ago well, was
1: that? 30,000? 30,
2: 30, no, the Younger Dryas was about 12,000, between 12,800 12, okay. and 12,900 right. years ago. Yeah. And, you know... This is the thing that Graham has been arguing is that we now know, like, from places like Unang Padang and Gobekli Tepe and, and probably the Sphinx, or almost certainly the Sphinx, there was a much higher level of cultural activity going on back then than has been realized. And, um,
1: and not only so, the civilizations weren't only wiped out, but the intelligence went along with them, and it was like a, a starting over completely like for the, the human over, race.
2: like Like a computer crash and then a rebooting
1: it's it's bizarre to think about and you know for me i sit there and i ponder all of these megalithic structures that were built all over the planet they they coincide the the old star maps that are carved into stone everywhere with the same the same carvings all over the entire globe with all of the civilizations that that existed and i have to sit there and think is it possible that we had some sort of i mean i alien assistance in in building these megalithic structures or the knowledge that came with it? Well, that's, you know, a
2: question that's been raised and debated and discussed for decades now, and I'll uh I'll give you a little insight into what I think. Okay. You know, I I I'm wide open on the question of aliens. I don't necessarily believe it, I don't necessarily disbelieve it. Right. The day that, you know, the the UFOs you know, sets down and and an alien gets out of it. And I get to ask him a few questions. Uh, in fact, probably a lot of questions I've got. Yeah,
1: I'm,
2: I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm holding back my opinion on the matter. But right, I think what we need to do is we just like um, use the analogy of modern times. Like, remember when Shoemaker-Levy nine in uh, 1994 struck Jupiter? Right. Was the right. Okay. So we were able to predict that 15 months in advance. Or well. Well, twelve months in advance, it was discovered uh, in March of ninety-three, and after three months of observation, the astronomers were able to predict that it was going to that these twenty-one pieces of what had had been a single cometary nucleus until it got ripped apart by Jupiter's intense gravity field. Forming it into 21 separate pieces, they were able to predict that you know in around the second week of July the following year, it, these pieces were going to collide with Jupiter. Now let's suppose Pat that um, we discover an object and we realize we and you know whether how we fare in the aftermath of an impact totally depends on how much time we have to prepare. Right now, so the thing is with Shoemaker-Levy nine. It had undoubtedly been circulating the sun for centuries. We had just never discovered it, right? But it was out there, you know, going like ping-pong back and forth between the sun and Jupiter, right? Now, suppose we discover something. Astronomers are looking out there, and they discover there's an asteroid, and they start charting its orbital elements, and they conclude that, you know what? In a decade or five years or 20 or whatever it might be, that darn thing is going to collide with the Earth what would we do? Well, there's a number of things we could do, but for, but every one of them would be oriented around maximizing the probabilities of our survival yeah. and maximizing our ability to preserve as much of our civilization and our science and our knowledge and learning as possible, see? So then what we would do is we would begin to devise strategies for perpetuating such a thing. Now, I think that if we look back, and this is I'm going to just put this out as a hypothetical model, if we look back at, at ancient history, we almost see that there is almost like two cultural trends running parallel. On the one hand, you see people that are living a very brutish stone age existence, what we might think of as barbarian existence, right? Hunter gatherers, subsistence architecture, but. Then superimposed on that is just all of those things you were just talking about, you know, these, this, these, this worldwide phenomena of megalithic architecture and monumental earthwork architecture, and this archaeoastronomy,
1: precise craftsmanship,
2: precise craftsmanship that would have required an enormous amount of organizational effort
1: and massive um, math skills
2: and math. Yes, exactly. Cartography mathematics, engineering, astronomy, right. even geology, there, somewhere there seems to be a source of knowledge that's out of context with with the conventional models of prehistory. So think about this. Suppose we got uh, faced with a devastating catastrophe that basically pulled the plug on civilization. Yeah. And in the aftermath of that, there might be two categories of survivors, those who Knew it was coming and took great uh, went to great lengths to preserve, to prepare, and to preserve as much as they could. They survived because they intended to survive. They planned to survive. They prepared to survive. Then you have other survivors who just essentially survived because they happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, they got through the luck of the draw. They survived. They. Wherever they were, they didn't get wiped away by floods. They didn't get wiped out by the fires or the explosive events. Those people now are going to be thrown back into the Stone Age existence. And there's evidence now that in the aftermath of the Younger Dryas, there was a a, a pretty extreme population collapse worldwide um, that probably was um, the counterpart to the mass extinction of the great megafauna. In other words, you know, we lost the woolly mammoths, we lost the saber-toothed cats, we lost the giant ground sloths, the, the Irish elk, the, the the cave bear, the, you know, on and on and on, right? Over 100 species. Well, those animals died in a catastrophe. To me, there's no doubt. The, the, right. the way when we examine the fossilized evidence, it's not consistent with human hunting. It's consistent with being wiped out in catastrophic events. So... It's also now becoming more acceptable to consider that, well, maybe the human population went through a precipitous decline as well, right? So the survivors who survived because of the luck of the draw, their whole preoccupation is going to be just the day-to-day existence. Where are we going to get food to survive tomorrow, right? Yeah. Um, now, if you had somebody else that, that actually went to great lengths to prepare and survive— Just like, um, well, we see an analog here, you know, particularly when we go back to the Cold War. We had, you know, what they called the continuity of government, which the idea was in the aftermath of a Cold War, everything would be basically, I mean, in the aftermath of a nuclear war, you know, we'd be, civilization might succumb. um, But they had their strongholds, you know, the um, Cheyenne Mountain um, in Wyoming, where they were going to take refuge in order to survive.
1: Yeah, right. and that's the thing that's the thing that I think about is you know, you talk about you know, there was a certain sector of society who prepared for this sort of stuff. They were educated enough, they prepared and they survived. I look at it, it's the exact same thing now. I mean, if there's a massive meteor or any kind of anything headed towards Earth, I very much doubt that they're going to announce it on the the nightly news that next Wednesday Earth is going to get destroyed, you know, they're just not gonna say it, I just don't see them right. saying it because the government and the people that that run everything are going to be underneath underneath those mountains because we know that we have those facilities so it's it's the same thing today in my mind.
2: Oh I think you're right the The, the thing is though it it may not work so well because of the fact that there's too many amateur astronomers out there, and a lot of the professional astronomers they're focused on you know other galaxies, deep space objects, and stuff. To discover an Earth-impacting asteroid or comet, you've got to be looking in near-Earth space. And you don't need, you know, a, a $500 million telescope to do that. You know, you can just do that from your backyard. And so just like, well, like Shoemaker-Levy 9. It's called Shoemaker-Levy because it was actually discovered by David Levy, who was an anima- a- amateur astronomer.
1: See? Right, right.
2: So you, know, so you think the, case- the
1: word would leak out that way?
2: I think the word, word would leak out that way, but but you know, and again, it depends on the lead time. If you've got five years, hey, a lot of people could get ready. If you've got five months, mm, not so much.
1: <laughs> right, right. So the the uh, the people that the, I'm going to go back to the builders of the structures here in North America. You know, okay. we don't we don't have you for much longer, so I'm going to get get to this. You know, at 5,500 years, you know, dating the oldest one that they found so far. Who who built those? Are we talking who who we would envision as the native Americans who are, you know, in our history books or was it another another, you know, civilization?
2: Okay, I tend to think that it was the native Americans. Okay. I think there was the indigenous peoples. I think they, let me put it this way, I think they provided the labor pool, but not necessarily the architectural design.
1: Very interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so and and there's all these mysteries and and you know, talk of giants that roamed the earth and all this sort of stuff. Is there any proof of that?
2: Well, you know, I can't say there's proof, but there is a very strong circumstantial case. Um, you know, in in a lot of the mound excavations of uh, North America, there were particularly in the 19th century there were, uh, numerous giants. Now I'm saying giants, I'm talking about seven to eight feet tall. Right. Um, uh, and you know, that tended to get lost. Now I have in my collection, I have, you know, I have access to, um, Emory university here where I live. And they have an extraordinary collection of, of, um, documents, historical documents and all of that. Been going through, Oh God, this was, this has been, uh, years ago now, but, um, going through a lot of the old stuff from the 19th century, you know, like archives of the various states and stuff, and there will be accounts of the excavation of uh, various mound structures and so forth, and there are frequently uh, accounts, you know, uh, you know, Reverend so-and-so and and his people are out there excavating, and they discover an eight-foot skeleton. So, You know, this was in the days there was, uh, you know, no internet for people to post things to go viral. Right. There wasn't any. There was nothing really to be gained by coming out and proclaiming that you had found a
1: giant. And what? At what time frame would these people have been dated? These giants.
2: Well, I'm thinking we've got to go back several thousand years for that. Um, Yeah, I would. I would think so.
1: So they were. So they were. Would you say that they were? A subset or part of the Native Americans, or they were just a different group altogether.
2: I think they would have been a different group altogether. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. And
1: they probably met their demise at the hands of the Native Americans, maybe.
2: Um. Or the flood? Maybe. Maybe. Although I'm inclined to think that they probably died under uh, as a result of natural catastrophes.
1: Okay. Okay. That's what because I was wondering. I mean that 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 makes sense to me. You know the, the you know the great flood and well there's nowhere to go.
2: Like here, here I'm just pulling something up here. Here's now this is from the uh, annual report to the Smithsonian Institution uh, entitled "Antiquities of Kansas City, Missouri," dated 1877. Uh, we have lately made a discovery here of a number of Indian mounds, which are evidently of great antiquity. They are situated on the north side of the Missouri River in the angle of the Great Bend upon the high bluffs commanding a view of the country about the mouth of the Kansas River directly opposite. Um, We have not yet made any extended investigation of these mounds, but examined partially one group of five. In the center of number one, at a depth of about five feet, we found a human skeleton. The bones were so fragile that we could only get them out in fragments. We did not notice any very marked Peculiar, peculiarity to these bones, except their great size and thickness. Wow. And, you know, there's many. Um, yes, let's see. And here they, um, in another case, this was the 12th annual report of the Bureau of Ethnology from 1890. They excavated a mound and they found a sepulcher and it was eight feet long. And this, the skeleton that was in it, pretty much filled up the whole sepulchre that they found and excavated from this
1: mound Um, so is this do you think this is the reason that because there was excavation going on in the eighteen hundreds early nineteen hundreds is this the reason the laws were passed to stop digging this stuff up because it brought up potentially a different history than we were taught
2: maybe maybe you know i i puzzled over that um... clearly you know the idea that there may have been seven and eight foot people wandering, but you know, hey, here's the thing: we know we we talk about mega fauna, right? Meaning yeah. huge or large or great fauna. And when we look at some of those, you know, you, you talk about the Irish elk; it had a antler span of up to twelve feet. You look at the the giant short faced bear, Arctodus simus. Massive. Here was a here was a creature that that stood six to seven feet tall at its shoulder and was twice the size of a modern grizzly bear right right and you could go on and on with this you you know the um mammothus imperator or imperial mammoth stood up to sixteen feet high at its shoulder was twice as big as a modern elephant
1: and so you think you know the the way it was put to me by uh, a person you know that runs in your circles is well yeah animals were a lot bigger then. why wouldn't the people have been bigger why couldn't
2: there have been exactly. right
1: actually <clears throat> so it does make perfect it does make perfect sense
2: yeah, it does. Here, here's another quote. I'll just. Historical Collections of Ohio in Two Volumes, an Encyclopedia of the State, was published in 1888, but it was a collection of things that went back to the 1700s. Um, <clears throat> so, when the settlers first arrived in this one particular settlement along the Ohio River, there were 20 or 30 Indian cabins, there were mounds situated in the eastern part of the village, and an extensive burying ground near the Presbyterian Church. Um, uh, which appeared to have had no connection with the burying places of the Indians. So when they excavated, among the human bones found in the mounds were some belonging to men of gigantic stature. Some of the skulls were of sufficient capacity to admit the head of an ordinary man, and jaw bones that might have been fitted on over the face with equal facility. The other bones were proportionately large. Now imagine a skull that's big enough that you can put it on like a helmet. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's a big person
2: that's that's probably somebody who's nine feet tall yeah you know so i mean and so the the archives are full of this kind of stuff pat and so what are you to make of it you
1: well know, and was, for anybody was, that anybody that doubts it all you have to do is spend some time around some samoans and you'll realize it's not that unthinkable
2: samoans okay all Right. Why the Samoans now? I don't. I don't know. A whole I'm just lot saying about because them. they're
1: 100... massive. If if you've ever if you've ever stood in a group of giant Samoan men, oh, their, okay. their their heads are literally, literally as big as my torso. They are massive human beings, and these people were even much bigger than them. Yeah, apparently so. Yeah. So it's 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 mind blowing. But uh, well, sir, we have to let you go here pretty soon. You have been a treat to have on it's it's i mean it's always an education just to read just to listen to you i listen to you uh, on a lot of different shows and do you have any social media that people can follow you on get more educated on some books well, yeah. Any, yeah anything say, please as, you know
2: i'm i'm thousand words into my book i'm going to try to have it finished by this summer right. um, and it's going to touch on a lot of the stuff we're talking about all with all the references and sources so people can you know follow this stuff stuff up for themselves if they're so inclined but um yeah geocosmicrex.com, just like it sounds geocosmicrex.com, and sacredgeometryinternational.com
1: anybody out there listening and also any social media that people can follow you on sir
2: uh, i haven't been too active on social media lately i uh, i'm trying to get back to that but i you know i've been so busy with my my design work and my research work. I find that I, you know, I'm one of those. I tend to get on social media, and and then two hours later, I'm going. Wait a second, I don't have time for this.
1: <laughs> I, I I perfectly understand. I do understand, sir. Well, we want to thank you again, Randall Carlson, for coming on, and we've got to have you on again here. We apologize. Some technical difficulties. Jeffrey is furious. He wasn't able to ask you some questions. Somehow, he got uh, dropped from the call, and we tried getting him back, but we're not able to. But we look forward to seeing your event again, May seventeenth. Uh yeah,
2: May seventeenth in uh, Southern Colorado, and um, go to the Grimerica website to find out more.
1: Those it's guys gonna, are awesome. The Grimerica boys to... are awesome. So yeah, check out the Grimerica site, and uh, hopefully everybody can join Randall and the posse down there around Durango. It would be a, it would be an amazing experience. I'm hoping I don't have to do a broadcast at that time, sir.
2: Yeah, I mean, there there might be a possibility that you'd come hang with us for a day
1: or two or three or whatever. I certainly am hoping so. I know that I'm in Colorado at the beginning of May for a broadcast. I haven't seen my schedule any further out than that, so I don't know if I'm doing a broadcast on that weekend. But if I am not, you know where I'll be.
2: I do, man. Well, it would be great to hang out with you and, uh, you know, meet you and and get to know you better. And maybe that will happen one day anyway.
1: It will. It will. Thank you, sir. Randall Carlson, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of The Conspiracy Farm.